Welcome to Kaya, the college and young adult ministry of Midtown Baptist Temple, a ministry seeking to pursue a deeper faith in Jesus Christ through God's Word, fellowship, and prayer. going to start in Acts chapter 23. Today's message is, uh, yeah, I landed on dealing with the accuser. Um, I always like, I rename it like four or five times before it's done. And so this is what I landed on. We'll talk about that here in a minute. But let's start by reading Acts chapter 22, verse 23 through the end of the chapter to get some context for where we're at. And uh, if you you remember, uh, or if you're familiar with this passage at all, Paul has been... uh, Sequestered. He's been captured and sequestered, and he stood recently before the Sanhedrin, which is a religious Jewish body. Uh, they were accusing him of essentially um, defrauding the Mosaic Law and the traditions of the Jews. Uh, but the Roman soldiers are standing nearby, watching this kind of, um, you know, this accusation being made. They're standing be- before this this body of religious leaders. Uh, Paul is there, and he's hearing all of their accusations and. And then it ends in a kind of a skirmish. Everybody gets upset. The Sanhedrin's kind of divided over one particular topic. Uh, then Paul gets scurried away. And, uh, and so let's continue reading here uh, because the plan after uh, you, you, there was a threat on Paul's life, the plan is to get him out of Jerusalem as quickly as possible, right? And they want to they take him to Caesarea, and there's a plan to do so. So let's read that plan here. Acts chapter 22, verse 23 says, And he called unto him two centurions, saying, Make ready 200 soldiers to go to Caesarea, and horsemen, threescore and ten, and spearmen, two hundred, and, and, and at the third hour of the night, and provide them beasts, and they may set Paul on, and bring him safe unto Felix the governor. And he, he being the uh, chief captain of the battalions there in Rome, Uh, It says, and he wrote a letter after this manner, Claudius Lysias, that's his name, unto the most excellent governor to to, uh, uh, Felix, sendeth greeting. So he greets him in his letter. This man, speaking of Paul, was taken of the Jews and should have been killed of them. Then came I with an army and rescued him, having understood that he was a Roman, a Roman citizen. And when I would have known the cause, wherefore they uh, accused him, I brought him forth into their council whom I perceived to be accused of of questions of their law. In other words, it seemed as though that the accusations were of a spiritual nature, so I brought Paul before them. And it says, uh, but to to have nothing laid to his charge worthy of death or bonds. So he discovered pretty quickly that they didn't have a charge that was worthy of imprisonment or death, certainly. And when it came, uh, and when it was told me how the, the Jews laid wait for the man, in other words, remember they conspired to kill him, I sent straightway to thee and gave commandment to his accusers uh, also to say before thee what they had against him. Farewell. So there's the letter. Then the soldiers, as it was commanded them, took Paul and brought him by night to Antipatris. On the morrow, they left the horsemen to go with him and returned to the castle, who... When they came to Caesarea and delivered the epistle to the governor, epistle just means letter, presented Paul also before him. And when, the, uh, and when the governor had read the letter, he asked of what province he was, and when he understood that he was of Cilicia, and then that'll lead us into the, lead us into the next uh, chapter. Now today, before we get into it, 
we're going to see Paul standing once again on trial. Okay, and this is, there's going to be a lot of this between now and the end of the book. Paul having to answer for himself time and time again. And so he's getting ready to stand before Felix the governor. And he is once again accused of crimes, crimes that he didn't commit. And so Felix is going to call the Sanhedrin back into the picture because he wants to get an idea of what's going on here. And so the, 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 the religious leaders from Jerusalem are going to come to Caesarea and they're going to stand before Felix and they're going to make their accusations known. Now what we're going to learn from today's lesson is that just like Paul, we too have accusers. We have accusers. We'll talk about that more. But if you're a Christian living out your faith in service to Jesus Christ, you need to anticipate the fact that, that throughout your journey in your faith, and on mission for Jesus Christ, you're going to face accusation. And we're going to kind of uncover what that accusation means and what it looks like today. But here's the, the simple truth of the matter is that Satan is going to weave stories about you. And he's got a plan. And he's going to work that plan. And he's going to make sure that those stories get into the ears of people that are around you, family members and friends, and he's going to make sure that those lies and those accusations, that they, they come before your bosses and your teachers and your instructors and the people that surround your life. But here's the deal. He also wants to sow those accusations into your heart and mind so that you also believe the lies of the accuser. Why? Well, what's his, what's his objective? Well, he knows that even though the words of other people are destructive, and they can cut you and tear you down, and, and gossip can exist, and, and, and false truths can exist externally around you. He knows if those accusations work their way into your life, that he's going to get everything done that he needs to get done. Because your frustration with yourself, your sense of failure, your disappointment, your depression, they'll completely suspend you from the work that God wants you to do. And so understanding accusation is actually a really big deal. And so we're going to get a picture of what those accusations look like as we move forward today. But let's pray, and then we'll get into it, shall we? Everybody's ready? Acts chapter 24, make sure you have your notepads and your pens, and we'll get into it. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, we love you. And we are uh, grateful for the work that you've called us into. And uh, Lord, there's so many people in this room that have devoted their lives to serving you. Uh, they, they consider themselves disciples of yours. And uh, Lord, they're growing in their faith and they're on mission. They've got a plan. They've got a plan for this fall to go and to reach the lost on their, their campuses. And, and they're going to go and seek to save the lost. And uh, Lord, we know that, that there is an enemy that despises that work. And uh, Lord, you see him and you know him for who he is. Um, and you see uh, just how difficult uh, it would be for us to go in our flesh and to face the accuser. And so, Lord, today I, I pray that you would teach us not to fear, first of all. Uh, Lord, that, that the knowledge of who Satan is and, and his desire to see us destroyed, uh, to see us silenced, that that wouldn't cause us to fear. Um, Lord, as he manifests himself all around us and in our lives, uh, Lord, that we wouldn't be afraid, that we wouldn't cower at his presence because you've given us a work to do and you have full knowledge of who he is. And yet you've still called us to work. 
And Lord, knowing his plans and his devices, you've still reminded us time and time again that you desire for us to go to all the world and preach the gospel and that you are standing with us, that you are our comfort and uh, your power is ever present with us. And so Lord, I pray that you would teach us ferocity in the spirit today, that you would teach us how to be bold and unwavering in in our uh, faith and in our uh, mission. And so Lord, be with us today guide us. And I know that also, Lord, you know, each week we've have had so many visitors recently, and I love that so much that, that people are coming to hear your word, and, and some of them don't believe, but they're curious. And, and Lord, I would ask today that, that you would have your perfect way with them. And uh, Lord, we don't, we don't have any desire uh, to, to see people, you know, made members of Midtown Baptist Temple. Like, we're not, we don't have a, a plot or a scheme or Numbers aren't our game, uh, but Lord, our objective is to see people set free from sin. And I know that that's your objective, and so Lord, I pray that you would whisper to their hearts that they would be reminded of the beauty of who you are, that they would have to come face to face with the overwhelming love of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And that, that that love would break them and, and cause them to, to recognize the, the sin that they carry and that they have a need for forgiveness. They have a need for your grace and for your mercy to be poured out upon them. And so, Lord, I pray that you would draw them uh, through your word to yourself and that people would discover who you are for the very first time. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so Acts chapter 24, verse 1. We're going to start by looking at the accusations set before Paul. Let's look in verse 1. It says, and after five days, Ananias, and so if you've been with us through the story, you know Ananias is the high priest. He's a real scumbag, okay? So Ananias, the high priest, descended with the elders. Now, what that means when we say descended, Jerusalem sits at at a higher geography, and so when they come down, what that means is they're coming down to Caesarea. They're, they're getting closer to the sea, and so the sea level drops, and they're coming down. But I can't help but think about the picture, okay, of this high and snooty high priest in his mind. He's coming down to Caesarea, right? He's lowering himself. But it also makes me think of, like, descending vultures, right, as they come down from their high place uh, to go and pray upon the weak. And, and so here we are, they're, they're descending with the elders and with a certain orator named Tertullus who informed the governor against Paul. And so here they come down to Caesarea and they've brought help with them. They brought this, this great orator, this great speaker to lay claim against Paul. They brought the most eloquent speaker that they can find. And, and so this guy, Tertullus, was probably a Hellenistic Jew. He was a, probably a Roman citizen, someone that would have been able to bridge the gap between these Roman officials and these Jewish believers. And so uh, he came to, to kind of generate sympathies with the Roman officials and the re- religious leaders. Verse 2, and when he was called forth... Tertullus began to accuse him, saying, saying that by thee we enjoy great quietness, and that very worthy deeds are done unto this nation by thy providence. We accept it always, in all places, most noble Felix, with all thankfulness. And so what we see here is Tertullus, you know, schmoozing Felix a little bit. You know, it's like a compliment sandwich. You guys know the, the principle of the compliment sandwich. If you're going to say something hard... 
you know, you start by saying something very kind and positive, and you close with something kind and positive, but you, but you put all of that difficult stuff in between to make it easier to eat, right? If I got to eat a poop sandwich, it better be on rye bread, I guess, you know? Uh, so, sorry, guys. That was like so Sam Miles of me. I, I probably <laughs> Dang, I mean, I've, I've known him for 20 years. I can't help it. Sometimes it's just, gosh. But he's, uh, he's preparing them by, by putting these compliments before, before them. But we know, if we know, you know, we've talked about this historically during this time period. There was tons of contention between the Roman officials and the Jews in Jerusalem. It was a, it was a nightmare, right? There was riots all the time. Right? And yet, nonetheless, he's finding a way to say, oh, you've brought us so much peace. Oh, Governor Felix, you're so good to us. Your deeds towards us are only just good. And in his heart, you know, those are all lies. Right? They hate the, the Romans. So, verse 4, here's where the accusations come into play. Okay? And these are the things that they're going to say about Paul here. And this is really important. We're going to break this down because I think there's parallels to the accusations that we face as believers. All right, verse 4, notwithstanding, that I be not further tedious unto thee, I pray thee that thou wouldest hear us of thy clemency a few words. For we have found this man a pestilent fellow, which is one of my favorite phrases in all of Scripture. Okay, pestilent fellow, and a mover of sedition among all the Jews throughout the world, and a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes, who also hath gone about to profane the temple, who we took and would have judged according to our law. We, we would have, we, this would have never been a burden to you. We were going to judge him according to our law, but the chief captain, Lysias, came upon us and with great violence took him away of our hands, commanding his accusers to come unto thee by examining of whom thyself mayest take knowledge of all these things whereof we accuse him. And the Jews also assented, saying that these things were so. They were in agreement. The Sanhedrin that was there, uh, those, those men that were laying accusation, they were there, and they're nodding their heads. Yes, everything he's saying is true. So let's look at these false accusations against Paul. And the very first thing I want to look at, accusation number one is that he was corrupt. He was a corrupter. Okay? He was toxic, if you will, would be another way of saying it. Here's the phrase they use. We found this man to be a pestilent fellow. And this word pestilent means like a plague, like a pestilence upon the land. Right? It's pretty heavy, isn't it? I don't think I've ever had anyone call me a plague. That's, those, that's a serious claim there. And this claim that he's a plague upon the Jewish people specifically, that he had a corrupting effect on the people and would continue to create unrest as long as he was permitted to be free. So that's what they want to make sure that Felix knows, is that like if this guy continues doing what he's doing, there's going to continue to be problems, just like you've seen over the last couple weeks in Jerusalem. You're going to see this over and over again. And so prepare yourself. That's the kind of person he is. He's a toxic person. Now, we too sometimes are accused of being pestilent or toxic as believers. Now, hopefully not because you're a jerk. I mean, if someone accuses you of being toxic because you like to argue and, and you like to debate and you're just kind of a mean person in general, well, that's on you. That has nothing to do with your faith. Uh, that's your own character flaw that you need to work through before the Lord. And so, so besides that, 
Christians do just by nature in terms of being mission-minded and going out into the world and, and unabashedly preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ, you will at, will at times be accused of being toxic. Maybe that's just in society, right? So like if we look at the news, Christians on the news are not portray, portrayed as being very kind. They're portrayed as being toxic, right? There's all, all kinds of cultural claims being laid against Christians all the time that are completely false. You know, like, um, you know, for, for, for simple example, right? People hate the fact that churches are tax-free. They're exempt from, from taxes, right? And, and, and so they hate that. And so what they try to do is that there are people that are actively trying to prevent that so that churches are forced to pay taxes. But little do they know, because well, they hate us, right? And, and, and they think we're bigots or whatever it is that they want to say. But little do they know that churches make up something like 95% of all the volunteer work in the country. And so if you want to strip churches of this tax-free exemption, then you're stripping them of funds that would otherwise be sacrificially given to the goodness and the well-being of our nation. But they don't care. We're pestilent. We're toxic. Right? They're working against us. Maybe you see this even on campus or in your workplace. Like another really simple example, example for me to think about that's impacted our ministry here specifically is that, is that years ago, we were permitted to go and pick up uh, you know, international students that were coming into Kansas City. We were permitted to do that, and, and we enjoyed that. It was a great ministry opportunity for us. It was a great opportunity to jumpstart FOI for the semester, and we would build relationships. We'd go pick up internationals that don't know their way around our city, and they would, we would bring them uh, to campus, and we'd, we'd take them to their home, and we'd help show them how to do different things, maybe set up bank accounts and do these types of things. But, the, but the, there was officials at UMKC who did not like the idea of Christians gaining such easy access to the internationals. And so they shut us down. They prohibited that. They kept us from doing that. And we've only just recently gotten the privilege back because they realized that none of these other lost people want to go and do it. <laughs> so they've invited us back, okay, because we're willing to do the things that, well, the lost folks don't want to do. And we're, we're glad to do that. But nonetheless, what we're talking about is they see us as toxic. They see us as, as corrosive, as though we're trying to get our tendrils in our, you know, in, into people's lives. Okay, well, we don't quite see it that way. right? We don't quite see it that way. But that is an accusation that we'll face, is that we're, we have a corrupting effect. All right? Now, number two, accusation number two. Paul's an instigator. He's a mover of sedition among all the Jews throughout the world. So sedition means insurrection, implying that wherever Paul goes, he generates strife. He was a lightning rod for division and riotous behavior. So the complete accusation here is that, that his pestilence, it spreads to others, causing more and more problems, not just in Jerusalem, but the claim is the whole world, the entire Roman Empire, is going to see the effects of Paul if we're not careful, O Felix. Right? You see what he's up, uh, Tertullus is up to here? Right? And so he's hoping to arouse Felix to understand 
the longer-term effects of letting such a man as Paul preach and teach indefinitely. And so we, too, are sometimes accused of being instigators. Being instigators. When you bring up the gospel or the Bible or what God is doing in your life and you bring that up before your family, okay, that's probably the one that hits home for a lot of us is that that our growth and our faith and our love for God's word, for other people, to their ears, it sounds like we're instigating something. Like we're trying to, to, you know, arouse conflict in people, right? When the God's honest truth is we're just trying to see people set free, right? There's nothing burdensome about my message. There was nothing, there's nothing burdensome about Paul's message in Jerusalem, right? But we so often get accused by family members or friends of generating strife in our family, and we become the point of contention. Not so-and-so's drug addiction, right, in your family or your, your peer group. That's not an issue. No one, everyone wants to push that under the rug. Or maybe not, not the fact that there's this problem in the family or this pro, there's all these other things that, that are swirling around us. The fact that, you know, you're permissive with your, you know, parents are permissive with these family members and, and turn a blind eye and, and the family's falling apart. It seems to be your fault because you're the Christian. And all you want to talk, do is talk about Jesus. And, and it's real, you're really easy for people to, to make accusation against that you're somehow instigating problems. And we have, many of us have faced that. I mean, there's a handful of people in here who have Christian families, but even in Christian families, a lot of times, it's the, the, the contention revolves around your, your perspective on the Bible. You know, you've got nominal Christian family members that go to such and such church that doesn't take the gospel seriously, and they're not mission-minded, and you love them, and you're both saved, but, but the problem is they see you as radical. And so that's difficult for them. And so somehow you're an instigator. Number three, accusation number three, is that he's a heretic. It says he's the ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. So Nazarene was not an association the average Jew wanted to have. Okay? It was a, it was a working class. Nazareth was a working class town. It was regarded as lesser than. Okay, we can all think of townships around here that we think of as lesser than. I won't invoke any of them, okay? Because I don't want to play into the stereotypes, but there's certain cities around here that we might say are not up to snuff or something. Uh, it's obviously a very, uh, a very prejudicial way of thinking. It's not right. Uh, but that's what the way they thought about Nazareth. Um, John chapter 1, verse 46, it says, And Nathanael said unto him, Can there any good thing come of Nazareth? Philip saith unto him, come and see. And that regards Christ, because Christ was raised in Nazareth. And so, in terms of the culture, the stereotype was nothing good can come from Nazareth. Oh, nothing but the Savior of the world, right? (laughs) And so he was raised in Nazareth within Lower Galilee. And Christians were sometimes associated with Nazareth because of Jesus. And it became a derogatory term against Christians, right? You follow the man from Nazareth you're of the sect of the Nazarenes, right? Does that, does that make sense, that connection? So Paul was the ringleader of a sect of Nazarenes. Now, this word sect means a, div- a, di- a divergent group, right? A divergent group. 
um, outside of the mainstream. Another word that we would use there is heretical. They were accusing him of being a heretic. So Paul was the chief leader of a group of heretics. Not only that, but they believed that his heresy generated subversive behavior. They accused him of, what does it say? Trying to profane the temple. That's what they accused him of, of profaning the temple. Profane means defile. As though his plan was to do something unlawful in the temple, which they were, uh, there was clearly no evidence of. Now, if we think about our story from chapters past, right? who was it that caused all the problems in the temple? I mean, wasn't he just there worshiping? No, it was, it was the Jews, the, 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 the Asiatic Jews that saw him in there, that were frustrated with him, that came in and created an uproar, and all the violence that happened in the temple that day was actually them. But they're laying it to his cause. So we too are sometimes accused, accused of being heretics, which is really kind of ironic. But let me explain it this way. We live in a world, we live in a world where there are uh, heresy abounds everywhere. Heresy, and you know, I would refer to it as Gnosticism, it abounds everywhere. And we were promised this, right? We were promised that in the end times, that false teachings would increase. And we would see an, a, a greater and greater uprising and diversity of, of these so-called faiths and so-called Christianities. And, and here's the deal. The more heresy abounds, the easier it is for the heretics to call us heretics. Isn't that strange, Right? In 2021, if you take the Bible literally to most people, you are divergent and subversive. And you are like a heretic to the heretics. It's so funny. In a world of plurality and relativism, where everybody wants to be super accepting and there's room for everybody at the table, boy, it sure feels like everybody but those of us who believe that this right here is the divine word of God. We're not invited to that table, you understand? And so we are perceived as the heretics. Does that make sense to everybody? So likely you're going to face similar claims from other Christians who think you're too radical, right? From other people that believe other things, but really even among other, uh, among other Christians, your take on the Word of God and the way that you approach evangelism and discipleship is going to appear to be really radical and people are going to uh, uh, maybe even hate you for it. Now, these are trumped-up indictments that Paul faces, and yet it's to be expected, right? It's to be expected. Coming from those who make their business to accuse. That's what they do. And we as believers must recognize the fact that our lives will be lived in absolute scrutiny and prepared accusation all the time. All the time. People want to see you fail. Okay? Now, I'm not saying... Again, I'm not trying to be like... Uh, I don't know. <laughs> like, I don't want to be conspiratorial. Let's put it that way. Right? But the, the God's the honest truth is people have always hated Christians. In fact... If we, look, if we look at history, we've had it pretty easy up to this point. And if we see things ramping up, it's only just common in terms of the history of Christianity, right? Christians have, for most of, of, of history, had it pretty rough. 
All right? But we have to understand that we're going to be hated and people are going to accuse us of things that just aren't true. You, there, if you're interested in this subject matter, in the first century you, won't, century, you won't believe the lies that were told about the Christians. It's amazing. And, uh, and history tells us that they were perceived to be like a, like a, a cult. I mean, um, I think it was in the pastoral. Anybody taking the pastoral epistles class? Yeah, some of you are taking that class. Uh, uh, Dan mentioned in the very first lecture this last week, I was listening in, um, he mentioned how uh, in Rome, it's likely, we don't have evidence of this, that Nero set fire to Rome, okay? But what did he do? What did he do? He blamed Paul and the, and the Christians. It was, they, were, they were the scapegoat. It was very easy because they were weird, they were strange, they appeared to be radical, they, they existed out of the mainstream. Look, Christians that follow Christ, it's going to be very easy for you to be accused of things because you, by choice, by choice, you have decided to be peculiar to, under, to, to see this world as a place that this is not your home, right? And because of that, we're going to be prime for accusation. And we've got, uh, you know, an enemy who's been, who's been giving us a hard time for 6,000 years, right? And just as we said last week, we need to wake up and recognize that we have an enemy who seeks our destruction. But the other thing is we need to know that he's more than happy to settle for our depression. So he wants to see us destroyed, but he'll, be, he'll take your depression instead. We all know how depression works, don't we? I mean, for some of us, uh, you know, it's, a, it's an ever-present thing. You've struggled with depression a lot. And for, for, for some of us, we've at least experienced it from time to time how depression works, right? You know, how, how it happens in our life. It begins with some sort of false truth or an accusation that's leveled against us that we can't seem to let go of, something someone said to you that you just can't shake it. It hurt you. And now you think about it, and maybe weeks have passed and months have passed and years have passed, and you still can't escape that thing that someone told you. Satan wants to use that. And so you, you think about things, and maybe it's not that. Maybe it's some sort of lie that you've told yourself or some sort of thing that was whispered in your mind or in your heart, and you haven't been able to let go of it, and it comes up from time to time. It's like a cycle, and you get stuck in that rut. Satan wants us to believe every accusation he makes about us. And if he can get us believing what he says is true, then he will have effectively immobilized you. He will have taken you out of the game. Because we all know that depression suspends us and keeps us stuck. Now, I want you to understand, I'm not talking about conviction here, okay? I'm not talking about conviction. Conviction is actually a healthy thing, right? When in your heart, in your mind, you tell yourself, oh, there's something that's out of alignment with God. There's, there's something about the way that I'm living, acting, behaving, or thinking that is incongruent with what the, the God of the Bible has said about me. 
And so that behavior, that action, or that thought needs to be corrected. And so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to repent of that sin. I'm convicted. I feel yucky inside. I don't feel right. It's almost, it's brought me to the doorstep of depression over it. But I'm going to lay it before him, and I'm going to get healing for that. That type of accusation is actually very healthy when that accusation comes up in your mind like, oh, I'm actually kind of a scumbag, and something isn't right about me, and I need to get that right. That's a healthy form of accusation, Right? I'm not talking about that. We should deal with sin so that we have a pure heart before the Lord. But what we're talking about is what we see here in the scripture, in our passage today, is that when you commit yourself to a life of service in Christ and you desire to be used by him, if you call yourself a disciple, you will, you will live a life dealing with the accusations of the enemy. There's no way around it. And every great leader that we see in Scripture also dealt with those same things. So here's our first key point. I know it took us a while to get there. Okay, here's our first key point. The more you desire to follow Christ, the more accusations you'll face. Very simple. I've learned this. The further along I've gotten in my faith, the more responsibility I've had in terms of shepherding, the more I've experienced accusation. Some of you may know, about a year ago, someone started a blog devoted to bashing me in this ministry. I never thought, like, ever, I thought people liked me. Like, I grew up just thinking, like, I was friendly. I was friendly. I got along with people. I was kind of a chameleon. I could fit into every group. I felt really good about the, my, my social abilities. I, I thought I'd never have, there's no way I'd ever have an enemy like that, Right? Um, But this is someone I gave my whole life, like I gave my life to, okay? I cared for her. I drew her into the faith. I ensured her safety in the Lord. And, and, you know, uh, somewhere along the way, she bought a lie, and so that turned into accusation. And look, that's just one example of the many accusations, um, you know, not just on social media. I can count all the times on social media over the last year someone has publicly spoken ill of me. It's mind-boggling, by the way. I had to get over it. I've, I've learned how to, how to get over that. But, but just even things that people say behind your back or, or ways in which Satan is trying to sow gossip or harmful things in, in our ministry or around us to cause this ministry to fail. And I've had to learn a long time ago that part of being a follower of Jesus Christ, and the further I, I get along in this work, the more accusations I'll probably face. And I've got to be okay with that. I've got to understand that to be true, and I've got to be okay with that. Did you know that the name Satan means the adversary? It, he, his name means the adversary. And according to Revelation 12, Satan's agenda is to stand and accuse the brethren night and day. Like a, like a prosecuting lawyer who wants to put, put you in bondage to imprison you, he stands and accuses you night and day. That's incredible. You think, like, get a life, man. I'm not that important. But listen, he's got, we talked about this last time. He's got a whole system, a world system, and a, and a legion of enemies at work to see us compromised. You know, we've got example after example of this work of Satan all throughout Scripture. You guys remember the story of Joseph being falsely accused by Potiphar's wife? You guys remember that story? He spent two years in prison because of that. 
I mean, prison today seems bad. I, I imagine in like ancient Egypt what a prison would be like. Two years, falsely accused. Elijah was falsely accused. Remember that? We talked about that not too long ago. He was falsely accused through personal guilt and fear of failure. Remember how Elijah feared to fail? And so an accusation stirred up in his own heart as though he was a failure, right? That was, that was an, a, a seed that the enemy sowed through his circumstances to see him derailed. Jeremiah was falsely imprisoned for his preaching, and one of my, my very favorite examples of this is actually Zerubbabel and the, and the priest Joshua who were falsely accused by his enemies and hindered in the restoration of the temple work. You guys know that story? Um, we're going to look at Zechariah real quick. Zechariah chapter 3, verse 1. Uh, Christ himself addresses the, the feelings and the, the difficulties that Joshua the high priest was facing in light of those accusations. And I, I love this passage, so let's look at it. Zechariah 3.1 says, And he showed me Joshua. Okay, this is Zechariah the prophet. Sees God is showing him Joshua the high priest. Standing before the angel of the Lord. And if you study scripture, you recognize that the angel of the Lord is actually the pre-incarnate Christ himself. And Satan standing at his right hand to resist him. So, you can imagine Joshua, the high priest, standing there. And on one side, he's got Christ. And on the other side, this is very much the angel and the devil on the shoulder thing, right? And so, you got, on one side, you have Christ. On the other side, you have the devil resisting him. And the Lord said unto Satan, The Lord rebuke thee, O Satan. Even the Lord that hath chosen Jerusalem rebuke thee. Is not this a brand plucked out of the fire? In other words, is this not a remnant? Is this not a person that I've chosen? Isn't Joshua the one that I've given this responsibility to? Do you really think, Satan, that you can contend with the one that I've chosen? Do you really think that? So awesome. Sorry. Look at the state that Joshua was left in because of, of, of the, the antagonism, because of what the adversary was telling him. Look at the state that he's left in here. Now, Joshua was, Joshua was clothed with filthy garments and stood before the angel. And he answered and spake unto those that stood before him, saying, Take away the filthy garments from him. And unto him he said, Behold, I have caused thine iniquity to pass from thee, and I will clothe thee with change of raiment. And I said, let them set a fair mitre upon his head. So they, they set a fair mitre upon his head and clothed him with the garments. And the angel of the Lord stood by. And the angel of the Lord protested unto Joshua, saying, Thus saith the Lord of hosts, If thou wilt walk in my ways, and if thou wilt keep my charge, then thou shalt also judge my house, and shalt also keep my courts, and I will give thee places to walk among these that stand by. So what we're a witness of here in this short exchange is the spiritual reality behind Joshua's very physical enemy, 
right? These guys that were against him, these accusers, they caused, through, through diplomacy and politics, they caused the work of the temple to be shut down. Now, I don't, have, I don't have time to get into all the wonderful things that we can learn from that situation, but these accusers were effective in his life. And they shut down the work of the temple, the thing that God wanted to get done. They were effective, and the accusations laid against Joshua actually impacted him. And that's the picture of those filthy garments that he was wearing. And we see the purpose of Christ at odds with the resistance of Satan. And Joshua's standing there in the middle in a low spiritual and emotional state of mind. And I just want to ask you, do you familiarize with that? Does that feel familiar? Do you find yourself in moments like that as well, where you, where you feel suspended, stuck, depressed because of accusations that have either been sown into your mind and heart or they've been laid against you from the outside? So and so is not a good leader. So and so is mean. So and so won't ever shut up. So and so is an instigator, they're corrupt. They're a liar. They're a hypocrite. What they say about their faith just isn't true. It's not true in their lives. They're a fake. They're a fraud. And we all know how that makes us feel. It has the ability to destroy us and to keep us from doing the one thing we were supposed to do, and that's to build the temple of God. Key point. The presence of Christ brings comfort but the authority of Christ chases away lies and fear. That was true for Joshua, Joshua wasn't it? That, that, that there was a comfort that came with the angel of the Lord being there with Joshua. But listen, that wasn't enough for Christ or Joshua. It's the authority of Christ's words in opposition to Satan that caused the, the lies and the fear to, f- to flee away. And when we feel dirty, guilty, tired, and defeated, Christ is able to rebuke those thoughts, to undo the spell of your accuser, to take away the filth of your old garments and clothe you in forgiveness and purpose of new ones. Ephesians 4.22 says that you put off concerning the former conversation, the old man, which is corrupt according to the deceitful lusts. You remember that old man, Right? The one, the one that existed before you were saved, before you were set free, you know that old man wants to creep back in and clothe you in filthy garments. And, and so here's the command, be renewed in the spirit of your mind, and that you put on the new man, which after God is created in righteousness and true holiness. It's when we're clothed in righteousness and holiness that we can address the accusations that are laid before us. Now let's look at what that looks like in Paul's life. Is everybody, is everybody on the same page with me? Does that make sense? I'm going to show you through the example of Paul. I am. I'm going to get through it. <laughs> I'm going to show you through the example of Paul of how we can also address the accusations that are laid before us. We see Paul very, very masterfully deal with his accusers. And each accusation, he counters that accusation. Let's start here with this, this first one. It said, they said that we found this man to be a pestilent fellow, a mover of sedition among all the Jews throughout the world. Listen to how Paul addresses that in verse 10. Now Paul has his opportunity to speak. 
Then Paul, after that the governor had beckoned unto him to speak, answered, For as much as I know that thou hast been of many years a judge unto this nation. So he says, Look, Felix, I know you've been a judge even before you were a governor. You judged over these matters time and time again. And I do the more cheerfully answer for myself. I know that you're just, and so I have no problem answering for myself. Because that, that thou mayest understand that there are, yet, there, uh, there are yet but 12 days since I went up to Jerusalem for to worship. So here's the very first thing that he says against the accusation that he's a pestilent fellow or that he's an instigator. He's like, look, bro, I've only been in Jerusalem 12 days. What, what problems could I have really caused in 12 days? So these accusations that they're laying against me, how true could they be? I haven't even been there that long. Who shows up to a city for 12 days and tears the whole thing apart? I mean, don't you think they're exaggerating a little bit? That did violence in the temple and all these things that they're saying? He continues by saying, verse 12, And they neither found me in the temple disputing with any man, neither raising up the people, neither in the synagogues nor in the city, neither can they prove the things whereof they now accuse me. I didn't arouse rioters or cause an uproar. Where is the evidence of such things? There isn't any. I mean, that's what he says here in verse 13. He's like, where are the people that actually witnessed these things happening? There's no one that can. It never happened. He expresses this verse, uh, this uh, further in verses 17 and 18, if you jump down. Now, after many years, I came to bring alms to my nation and offerings. Remember, he was bringing money uh, to, to, the, to uh, the Jews there. And whereupon, certain Jews from Asia found me purified in the temple, neither with multitude nor with tumult. That word tumult means upheaval. So he wasn't disputing. He wasn't raising up upheaval. He wasn't bringing up problems. He wasn't arguing or fighting with anybody. He wasn't being violent. He wasn't saying anything. He wasn't preaching in the streets. Paul, I mean, Paul is down with preaching in the street. He hasn't even done that. He came to Jerusalem. He went to the temple. He worshiped for a couple days, and, and then they laid accusation against him. So through, through, what's happening here is that through all of this, he's calling out his conspirators as liars. He's acknowledging what is a lie. And that leads us to our next key point. Know the accusations and call them out one by one. Know the accusations. For the last two sermons, we've been talking about our accuser. We've been talking about the adversary for two sermons now. We're familiar with him. Right? But what I'm saying is, you can't keep the accuser from accusing. The accusations are going to come. The thing that you can do is you can have power over those accusations by acknowledging them as lies. Right? The fact that you're a failure, the fact that you're a hypocrite, the fact that, you're, that, you're, that, peop that people don't like you or, or don't trust you or whatever it might be, whatever it is that you feel, whatever it is the thing that wants to make you feel depressed and stuck and keep you from being mobilized for the work, those things, call them out one by one. Call them out before the Lord. Call them out before the enemy. Acknowledge what is not true. Knowing what the lies are is super important. A lot of us go about life and we feel the depression. We feel, we feel the results of the accusations, right? We have the symptoms of the accusations. 
But very few of us go about the hard work of finding them at the root and plucking them out. Where did that lie come from? That thing you always tell yourself or that that thing that other people say about you. Where did that come from? Address it at the root. Call it out for what it is. That's what Paul did. Psalm 44 says, Blessed is that man that maketh the Lord his trust and respecteth not the proud, nor such as turn aside to lies. So many of us have turned aside to lies. And the best thing that we can do is acknowledge those lies for what they are and call them out. He goes on to address this issue of being a heretic. Verse 14. But this I confess unto thee, that after the way which they, they call heresy, now they call it heresy, right? So worship I the God of my fathers, believing all things which are written in the law and in the prophets, and have hope toward God, which they themselves also allow, that there shall be a resurrection of the dead, both of the just and unjust. And herein do I exercise myself to have always a conscience void of offense toward God and toward men. Here's the next key point. There is nothing like reciting the truth to relieve the burdens of lies. So it's one thing just to acknowledge what the lies are, but it's a whole other thing reciting truth, reciting what's actually true that relieves you of the burdens. This is why you have to spend every single day in God's Word. Because this is our way of reciting what's true. This is our way of disputing the lies. This is our way of having a right heart and right mind regardless of the accusations that come towards you. This is how we deal with it. And that's just what Jesus did, isn't it? In Matthew chapter 4, verse 1, after he gets baptized, it says, Then, then was Jesus led up of the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted of the devil. And when he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights, he was afterward and hungered. And when the tempter came, the tempter, you know, the accuser, came to him, he said, If thou be the Son of God, command that these stones be made bread. But he, being Jesus, answered and said, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of God. So how does he respond to the tempter? How does he respond to the accuser? By quoting scripture. Then the devil taketh him up to the holy city and and setteth him on a pinnacle of the temple and saith unto him, If thou be the son of God, cast thyself down, for it is written, He shall give his angels charge concerning thee, and in their hands they shall bear thee up, lest at any time thou dash thy foot against the stone. Jesus responds, and he said unto him, It is written again, Thou shalt not tempt the Lord thy God. Again, the devil taketh him up into an exceeding high mountain and showeth him all the things of the world and the glory of them and saith unto him, All these things will I give thee if thou wilt fall down and worship me. Then saith unto him, Get thee hence, Satan, for it is written, Thou shalt worship the Lord thy God and him only shalt thou serve. Then the devil leaveth him and behold, angels came and ministered unto him. Every time the tempter came with some sort of lie, some sort of mistruth, and we don't have time to, to go through it. The, 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 the things that, that Satan was offering Christ were riddled with small lies. And every time that Satan came to him and, and made one of these temptations, Jesus knew just how to react. The word says such and such. The word says such and such. And that is how we live and fight against the temptation towards depression and accusation in our own life. That's how we do it. Jesus modeled it for us. The relief that follows speaking truth in trial is once again a good conscience. Remember we talked about a good conscience? Verse 16, and herein do I exercise myself, meaning 
I strive within myself to have always a conscience void of offense toward God and towards men. A good conscience doesn't mean that you'll please everybody. That's not what we're talking about, right? We're not talking about finding a way to make everybody happy with you and to appease your accusers, to appease the people that dislike you, to appease the people that say lies about you. We're not talking about fixing that, all right? A good conscience has everything to do with what we, how we see our, ourselves before the Lord, <coughs> void of offense towards God. And after all, you know, a, a revolutionary life will always be divisive, and so we can't make everybody happy with us. What Paul means here is he's saying that he has a conscience void of offense before the Lord. 1 Peter 3.12 says, For the eyes of the Lord are over the righteous, and his ears are open unto their prayers. But the face of the Lord is against them that do evil. Now listen to this, verse 13, this is super important. And who is he that will harm you? If ye be followers of that which is good, but, and if ye suffer for righteousness' sake, happy are ye. And be not afraid of their terror, neither be troubled, but sanctify the Lord God in your hearts, and be ready always to give an answer to every man that asketh you a reason of the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. Listen, verse 16. Having a good conscience, that whereas they speak evil of you, as of evildoers, they may be ashamed that falsely accuse your good, con- uh, good conversation in Christ. For it is, is better, if the will of God be so, that ye suffer for well-doing than for evil-doing. See, ultimately, Paul is unafraid to make one thing clear. And he, and he does make it super clear here, and this is what we're going to end with. He makes one thing clear, is that for him, for him, the resurrection is enough. The resurrection is enough for him. It has been enough for him, and it is enough for him. And he has a good conscience before the Lord. Look at verse 19. Who ought to have been here before thee and object? If they, if they had ought against me, or else, so in other words, where were they when they made these accusations? Or they, they had these accusations? Who are the people that, 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 that witnessed this against me? Or else let these same here say, if they have found any evil doing in me while I stood before the council, except, okay, listen, this is what he says. The accusers have nothing against me. Everything they said is false. Everything they said is a lie, except this one thing. Except to be for this one voice that I cried standing among, among them. Touching the resurrection of the dead, I am called in question by you this day. So what he's saying, first of all, is he's saying, look, if it's about the resurrection, these fools, some of them believe in the resurrection themselves, okay? And they're mad at me for believing in the resurrection. But it goes deeper than that. What Paul's really saying here, subtly beneath his conclusion is that it, is that it has been and will always be about the resurrection. All of the lies, all of the hatred, all of the accusations, it always comes down to the resurrection of Jesus Christ, all of it. And today, Christians stand accused for the very same reason. It, it hasn't changed one bit. The reason that we stand accused before the lost is because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. We believe that Jesus died and rose again. And let us not forget that once upon a time, the Son of God stood before his own accusers. He was hated, betrayed, and on trial for crimes he never committed. 
And as his accusers stood before him laying their charges, this is how it went. This is how it went. You ready to read it? Follow with me. Mark chapter 15, verse 2. He stands before the accusers, and Pilate asked him, Art thou the king of the Jews? And he answering said unto him, Thou sayest it. And the chief priests accused him of many things, but he answered nothing. And Pilate asked him again, saying, Answerest thou nothing? Behold, how many things they witness against thee. But Jesus yet answered nothing, so that Pilate marveled. See, here's the deal. Jesus didn't have to say anything. Because the only answer they needed was coming three days from then. The only answer his accusers needed was the resurrection. The only answer our accusers need is the resurrection. The resurrection, it it covers the whole thing. It covers the issue of the mind. It covers the issue of the heart. It covers the issues of our enemies. It covers the issues of all the problems and the circumstances that we face every day. The, the resurrection is the answer. And we need not refute. We need not fight. We need not go, to, go toe-to-toe. We seem, simply need to rest in the truth that Jesus Christ did it all on the cross. The only answer we will ever need is Christ rose again. It's the message that causes us to be hated, but it's also our answer, our cure, and our cause. The resurrection is what makes us free, and no lies and no chains will ever take that from us. He is our answer, and we ought to live in that reality. Now here's the deal. As we close... I'm going to go ahead and have the, the, the worship team come up. There's a tendency, though, when the worship team comes up that you're staring at them and, like, wondering, you know, what song we're going to sing. I don't know what you're thinking about, but I want to point something out real quick. Um, we're going to give an invitation. And an invitation, that just means that we're going to invite you to come meet with someone to talk about whatever spiritual thing you're struggling with. And there's people in this room that struggle with feeling stuck and depressed, and you know for a fact that it's Satan's way of keeping you from the work of following Jesus Christ. And, and for a lot of you, that's, that's the thing that's keeping you from actually signing up for discipleship. You can't even put your finger on it. You don't even know what it is. It's just this feeling, this sense of dread and failure, like you shouldn't and you can't. And that's messed up. And you can't let that fly. And you need to deal with that today. But there's, a, there's another group of people in the room, I know for a fact, that there's people today that aren't Christians. In other words, you've never put your faith in Jesus Christ, and you've never asked for forget, forgiveness of your sin. You've never done that before. And I want to I make a proposition to you. That whatever it is that you've struggled with in your life, whatever it is that, that feels like accusation, that feels like depression, that feels like you're not enough. Maybe you feel like you don't have purpose. 
Maybe you feel like you don't have answers for life or struggles that you have. Jesus Christ extended to you the resurrection. Jesus Christ came to this earth and he lived a perfect life. The Son of God, the very Son of God, came to this, to this world with your name and your life on his mind. He knew when you would live. He, he knew your name. He knew all of the circumstances surrounding your life, both good and bad. And he had one thought on his mind. How do I give them my resurrection? And he's extending that to you even right now. You have an opportunity to be lifted of the burden of your trials. You have an opportunity to be lifted of the burden of your sin. You have the ability today to stand up and come meet with someone and figure out what it means to be saved. To be saved. It's a biblical word. The word saved simply just means this. God wants to deliver you from the bondage of sin. He wants to set you free. He wants to give you eternity with him. He wants to save you from your destination. The way you're headed, he wants to turn you the other direction. And only he has the ability to do it. And so today, I want, you to, I want to ask you, would you consider the resurrection and what it means for you? And as we pray, would you just be unafraid to stand up? There's going to be, standing back here, standing over here, there's going to be several counselors, leaders that I trust with my life. And I want to invite you to do the same to stand up and go meet with them and talk to them about what it means to know Christ as your Savior. Don't wait. You're not promised tomorrow. You have, you have no idea what tomorrow will bring. And I'm not the type of person to put before you all of the awful, dreaded things that could happen to you. But the truth is, you don't know when your last breath is coming. Do you ever... I used to do this. I used to lay in bed at night and wonder what was going to happen to me when I die. I know that that's common. I know a lot of people struggle with that. What is my life? Well, the resurrection is the answer. I want to invite you to come forward and deal with that today. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, thank you so much for giving us purpose, giving us freedom, giving us peace, allowing us to be set free. Well, we thank you so much for the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. The greatest gift I could ever receive is to know you. And Lord, today, we want to we worship you with that in mind. But Lord, we want, we want you to also work in our hearts. Like, we want to give you something in our worship, but Lord, we want you to also... Give us something in terms of conviction. For those of us who forget your resurrection so easily and fall back into accusation, God, set us free. Help us. Help us to change the way that we see uh, the accuser and the accusations. Help us to see it differently. Help us to trust you. But Lord, more importantly, for those in the room who don't know you as Savior, Lord, would you bring them forward today? Would you convict them to the point of stepping out and saying, I've got to change something. I need Jesus. That's what I need. Lord, help them. We pray, uh, Lord, your spirit would move. In Jesus' name, amen. We hope that today's message encouraged you to follow Christ in his word. For more information about Kaya, for service times and information about our disciple-making ministry, please visit our website at caya.com. 
www.live.live.live.live.live.live.live.live.live.live.live.live.live.live.live.live.live.live.live.live.live.live.live.live.live.live.live.live.live.live.live.live.live.live.live.live.live.live.live.live.live.live.live.live.live.live.live.live.live.